Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. My name is Yuri Shepard Kegel. Yuri is 29. She's deaf. She's actually signing these words to her adoptive mother, Judy, who's interpreting for her. My name sign is Yuri that I, I just signed, which is a Y down the side of my face. Right now, I'm at home in my home in Maine. I've lived here 13 years. I'll, I'll soon have my anniversary of when I came to the United States. Yuri emigrated to the U.S. from Central America. I'm from Nicaragua. She was born without hearing, and she didn't communicate much at all for the first few years of her life, until she went to a school for the deaf. When I was four years old, I entered the school. They came, they took me to the school, and that's where I started to learn Nicaraguan Sign Language. From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle, a podcast about languages and the people who speak them. Once upon a time, there were no languages. Then, at some point in human development, we began speaking to each other, eventually in ways that followed grammatical patterns. Not sure when irregular verbs made their debut. There's some linguistic archaeology being done about this that offers clues about how all this happened. But the details are elusive. We just don't know how we started to use language. Today, though, we know a little more thanks to a language that only came into being recently, Nicaraguan Sign Language. Where were you in 1979? Maybe not on this earth. A lot of stuff happened that year. Charlie's Angels, for one thing. Once upon a time, there were three little girls who went to the police academy. Iranian students continue to hold more than 50 hostages at the American embassy in Tehran this morning. Her Majesty, the Queen, has asked me to form a new administration, and I have accepted. Frank, it was an accident at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant, which is located on an island in the Susquehanna River, 10 miles from there was all that, and this, a left-wing insurrection in Central America. Victorious Sandinista rebels marched into Nicaragua's capital city of Monaco today. In 1979, there was the, what they refer to as the triumph of the revolution. The Sandinista government took over. This is Judy Shepard Kegel, the woman who was interpreting for her daughter at the top of the episode. She teaches linguistics at the University of Southern Maine. She was a young researcher back in 1979. Judy spoke with Carol Zoll about this time in her life. Here's Carol. It was in the years after 79 that Judy first got involved with Nicaragua. The new Sandinista government had big plans for their country. They were involved in all kinds of promotions to get a fourth-grade education for everyone, um, get people literacy, improve health care. You know, the amount of tuberculosis was high. The literacy rate was horrendous. As part of this drive for literacy, the government started providing special education for deaf kids in public schools. Deaf people were hidden in the homes. I mean, deaf people weren't even going to the churches. They weren't, they weren't anywhere where they were really becoming part of the community. There was a real stigma. But now, for the first time, hundreds of deaf children were brought together in a few schools in the capital city, Managua. Judy Shepard Kegel had been a graduate student at MIT. Some of the professors there were in a group called Linguists for Nicaragua. They were making trips to Nicaragua to teach. 
And while they were in Managua, they were approached by the Ministry of Education, who asked them if they knew anyone, if there was anyone in their group that was specialized in deafness. So those people came back to me and said, are you interested in going down there? And Judy was. I got a plane ticket. I flew down. I stayed in a family house that Linguists for Nicaragua had set up. And the first place Judy went was a vocational school. When I walked in, I said, I'm a linguist. I study, you know, sign language. What do you want from me? And they pointed to a bunch of kids milling around on a little basketball court in front of us and said, we want to understand what they're talking about. Now, these kids had never been taught sign language, ever. There just wasn't any sign language in Nicaragua. At school, they were being taught lip reading in Spanish and were told not to use gestures. But somehow, these children had found a way to connect anyway. Because outside of the classroom, on the playground, on the school bus, they'd been gesturing with each other, using the signs they'd used at home with their families. Judy's role at the vocational school was to observe the students and try to decipher how they were communicating with each other. So I was allowed to just kind of go into these classes. So I went into the beauty shop class with my little notebook, and I just watched what they were doing. And I had, you know, I could be there all day. And the kids she was watching got curious about her, and they came over to see what Judy was doing. They realized that she was studying them, studying their signs. And they went into a little huddle, and one of them, Mavel, comes up, and they decided that if I was learning these signs, they would test me. So she showed Judy a sign. And I was like, okay, this is my big test. So I had to figure this out. And I thought, well, they're all 12, 13, 14. I saw a few of them doing something that I thought was a sign for menstruation. And so I guessed, you know, and I described in gesture a sanitary napkin. Well, I got it right. That was my ticket. That was it. From then on, the kids taught her anything she wanted to know. They taught me how to ride the bus. They taught me where to find food. You know, I had passed whatever their test was, and that was it. From then on, I could just, you know, collect as much as I wanted, and they were a part of that process. So Judy started learning their signs. But although she was starting to communicate with them, it seemed to her that they didn't have a full-fledged language. What they had, she thought, was a system of gestures. They were communicating. There was a rich communication. It was a kind of elaborated contact gesturing that was happening. Contact gesturing, a series of gestures that communicated a thought or idea, but didn't really follow grammatical rules, like a language would. Let me give one example. So the gesturers would sign some sort of an action, like talk, and they'd move their hand back and forth at their mouth. And then they might point to one person and point to another person, and that meant he told her, he talked to her. That looks totally different from a full-fledged sign language. When you see a language, it's rule-governed. It's got internal consistency. It's following a human set of constraints on how grammars look. That thing did not yet exist when those first kids came into the schools. So Judy continued to study the kids at the vocational school. But after a couple of weeks, she went to visit some younger kids at an elementary school. That's when I saw something very different. The younger children were communicating much more fluently than the older kids, which is not what you might expect. Usually we think the older a child is, the better their language skills. But at this elementary school, the very youngest kids were actually the most fluent. 
So, Carol, that almost sounds like the fluency is going backwards, getting younger. How can that be? Well, it might sound counterintuitive, but actually, this is something that can happen when languages come into being. And Judy was a linguist, and she knew that. So she was looking out for certain things that she'd seen in other languages? Yeah, it was something like that. I mean, she knew about things like modern Hebrew. That's a language that was revived. The first generation to revive Hebrew learned the language as adults. Then they spoke it to their children. These children were raised with Hebrew as their first language. This new generation of children actually spoke the language better than their parents did because they were now native speakers. And at this stage in the development of a new language... The stage where the children are really leading the pack, the younger the person, the more fluent the language. And that's what Judy was seeing at the elementary school. And that made me realize, wait a minute, what am I looking at here? Judy concluded that she was looking at the emergence of a brand new language. And over time, it became clear to her that these younger children weren't just more fluent, they were operating on a whole different level. When you watch these guys signing, your brain immediately went into, oh, that's happening linguistically. Oh, that's what's going on with the order. Oh, they're using this. Oh, they're using that. Oh, the facial expressions. The regularity and the consistency for someone who already had looked at a sign language and was looking at sign language grammar, it just became very clear. It was like somebody just wiped away the fog and you could, you could see the grammar right there in front of you. So, Carol, how did these younger kids make that jump from, you know, the rudimentary gesturing to what Judy was seeing right there, like a language with a full grammar? Probably not every linguist would agree on exactly how it happened. But here's what Judy thinks. The younger kids were young enough that they were in the so-called critical period, meaning their brains were very receptive to language. And they had spent lots of time with the older kids, and been exposed to those gestures and signs that those kids had been using. And Judy thinks that that was the trigger for creating the new language. That was the stimulus. That was the input to the younger kids. The kids who really benefited from that input were four, five, six. Those children had no way of knowing that the gestures and signs they were seeing weren't really a language. So they learned it. It wasn't a language but their brains filled in the holes of what was missing. That's the kind of formula for this. This is key to Judy's understanding of what happened. She believes that as long as we're given the right stimulus at the right time, our brains will produce language. The young kids see people trying to communicate and repeating, and they see gestures, and they look at this and their brains go, boom, I'm going to focus on this. We are predestined to do that predestined to learn the language? If that's the case, how quickly can we humans turn basic communication into a fully formed language? How long does it take to go from zero to 60? That's after the break. I don't know about you, but before now, I'd never been in a quarantine or witnessed a deadly pandemic. And now shelter-in-place orders are beginning to end. It's a crazy, uncertain time. That's why I want to tell you about a new podcast called Can We All Come Out Now? It's centered around stories from people who rejoin society after a long time away. You'll hear from coma patients, prisoners of war, cult survivors, and more, all of whom offer advice 
for coping with a post-quarantine world. I've listened to a few episodes and, well, the stories are really fascinating. Plus, there's all this useful information. You can find Can We All Come Out Now wherever you get your podcasts. So when we left off, we heard Judy say that people are predestined to produce language, given the right input. She believes that Nicaraguan Sign Language is a confirmation that we as a species are hardwired for language. Okay, that's pretty huge. What else have people learned after decades of watching this language emerge? Well, you know, Patrick, a lot has been learned by looking at the different ways that Nicaraguan Sign Language has been changing over time. Because, you know, they had new kids coming to that elementary school every year. So they were able to compare different generations of signers. So I talked to one researcher named Molly Flaherty. I'm a visiting assistant professor of developmental psychology at Swarthmore College. And the thing that Molly has been studying is how the size of the language has been changing over time. You mean the actual size of the signs in space? Like how large are the physical signs? So she'll get people of different ages to describe the same event to her, to see the differences in how they sign. They do this by using motion tracking technology to follow the position of people's wrists in space. So what we see in Nicaragua is that older signers, they sign larger than do younger signers. So that means like when they're articulating the same sign, their hands actually cover more space. They cross more space. They move further through the space in front of their bodies than do younger signers when they're signing that very same sign. Molly thinks the change has to do with the older signers, the ones from the earlier generations, wanting to make sure they were understood. So you might imagine the pressure to be understood might keep you big, might keep you making more larger signs that were easier to see or easier to see the movement of in some kind of way versus a smaller sign might be easier to miss. So it might be harder for somebody who doesn't share your language to be able to understand. But younger signers today don't have that same pressure. They do expect to be understood. Because they share a language the way that the vast majority of us here on Earth share a language with other people. And that means that other pressures can start to influence the language. So maybe then you can start seeing pressures for efficiency and production show up so that they can start making the signs smaller, start making them faster, because they no longer have this counter pressure to keep them as large and understandable and big and clear as possible. So are these signers in Nicaragua, are they themselves aware that the language has been changing? Oh, yes. And Molly says that the older signers, at least some of them, think the younger signers are getting it all wrong. Within the Nicaraguan sign community, you still, you know, will interact with people who will talk about how the kids are being so messy and so sloppy in their signing. And they're, you know, clearly ruining the language in this way or that way, just like you find everywhere else on Earth. <laughs> That's hilarious. I mean, it, it really seems to be such a universal thing that older people complain about the way that younger people speak. So what about other changes in the language that, that people are looking at? They look at how vocabulary has been changing between generations. So there was this one study that looked at how good people were at expressing concepts relating to time, like talking about the order of a series of events or using ideas like next or continue. Next or continue. Why specifically those terms? 
Linguists are divided over how long these time concepts might have taken to evolve in human language. Because, you know, they're complicated, they're kind of abstract, so they might have taken a longer time to develop. In this particular study, they did find a big difference between the generations. The earlier signers were just not as good with these time concepts as the later signers, which shows that they do take a while to develop. But it was only a few generations, not hundreds of generations, like some people might have thought. And this is something that I talked about with Molly, too, the speed of the language. It's not like it takes 100 years to get a language off the ground, and that's really good to know. That means that language is so integral to our human experience that basically give it half a chance to emerge, and it will. So maybe that's how quickly language emerged originally, too. Not over millennia, but decades. Right. I mean, you can see how the research into Nicaraguan sign language is casting doubt on a whole bunch of sort of almost orthodox ideas. Exactly. And let's stay with vocabulary. Molly worked on an experiment that involved numbers and counting. She was trying to figure out how it affected people if you didn't have one, two, three, four, five in your vocabulary. So here's what she did. I would knock on somebody's shoulder five times, and then I would ask them to knock back on my shoulder the same number of times. She wanted to see whether people who didn't have any language for numbers could do this. For people who no language for number, who count things all the time. This is a pretty trivial task. I knock on your arm, you count in your head. You knock back on my arm, counting again in your head. But if you'd never learned language for numbers, could you do it? Some older Nicaraguan signers who only learn the language as adults have never learned numbers. They never learned to count. Could they reproduce the right number of knocks? People don't seem to be able to match five knocks to five knocks exactly, or don't seem to be able to produce five knocks themselves to match my five knocks, unless they also have language to talk about five. Wow, that's crazy. I know. Like, if you don't have the idea of one, two, three, four, five, do you actually feel five taps on your arm? I mean, how, how do you experience that? Right. I mean, doesn't that get right to the question of how language influences how we think? You know, I always wonder about that. But you can also turn it around and ask how our brains influence language. And I think that's why so many of the studies on NSL compare different generations of signers. Because linguists are really interested in the influence of children's brains on language. When children are learning a language, they're not just passively absorbing words. They're actually really active interpreters of the language that they're learning. They're analyzing it, and they are finding structure there, even sometimes when you didn't intend to put it there. Children are always trying to make sense of language. They're doing this very complicated pattern-finding thing. They look for patterns, and when they find them, they favor the ones that occur most frequently. And in this way, over time children drive the way a language develops. Kids are good at learning certain things. And since kids are the primary language learners, they are the ones who are selecting for what stays in language, essentially. Because anything a child can't learn can't stay in a language, or at least not for very long. That means that children have an outsized influence on language. All languages. To think about the fact that this integral product that we all use every day, all day, 
may really be shaped by the youngest minds and by the youngest people in our world is a... I don't know. I like that idea that we're all using this this creation of children all the time and we don't necessarily realize it. And that, of course, is what Nicaraguan Sign Language is, the creation of children. First time I saw a computer, I mean, I had never seen one before, but, you know, it was pretty awkward. I was just hunt and peck and do what I could. This is Yuri Shepard-Kegel again, with her mom, Judy, interpreting. From her home in Maine, Yuri stays in touch with her old friends in Nicaragua. But it hasn't always been easy. We'd use things like Facebook, and, you know, we would just share pictures back and forth with my friends in Nicaragua. I didn't want to lose touch. But they have computers, I have computers now, and we just keep in touch. I found their faces on Facebook, we made contact, and now we chat over the phone all the time. Our goal is to keep communicating and, and keep the language preserved. Yuri Shepard Kegel. Her mom, Judy, says that now that linguists know what to look out for, they're finding other possible new languages among signers in many other parts of the world. Judy, by the way, has become lifelong friends with Marvel, the Nicaraguan signer who first taught her and then tested her signing skills. Today's episode of Subtitle was reported by Carol Zoll. Our sound designer is Tina Toby. Thanks to Jenny Pyers, Debbie Chen Pickler, James Shepard Kegel, Galen Koch, Kimberly Haas, Jeremy Helton, and our partners at the Linguistic Society of America. We have a transcript available for this episode. There's a link to that in the show notes. If you haven't yet rated and reviewed us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, please do it now. It takes no time at all. It'll help others find us. Last but not least, thank you to the wonderful people at the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, of which Subtitle is a member. Another Hub and Spoke podcast is Iconography. This is a podcast about icons, things with meaning in our lives. Meanings that we don't fully understand, like the full English breakfast, Plymouth Rock, the Spice Girls. Iconography host Charles Gustine helps bring that meaning into focus. There's a wonderful recent episode about bridges and the hold that they have on us. Check out Iconography and all of the Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.